Today, I'll be reading another chapter from Nell Adams' book, My Vanished World. And the chapter I'll be reading is chapter 12, which is entitled The Panglong Agreement, which was signed in 1947 by the Shan. And I think it's fair to say that Nell believes the signing of this agreement had disastrous consequences for the Shan people. I'll start reading now. It was now February 1947, and as our midterm holiday had come to an end, it was time to return to school. I did not go back with Jean and my two brothers, because my parents had given me permission to stop at home until the following term, when I'd be attending a new school. The political situation in Shan State had become unsettled. Several small groups of activists, influenced by the Burmans, had emerged everywhere. My parents, especially my mother, were disturbed by this new development, so alien to their tradition of peace and calm. During the British administration Burma proper, an area which the Burmans formed the majority of the population, was part of India till 1937 and had always been directly under the British rule, whereas the hill states or frontier states were allowed to remain autonomous. When looking at the map of Burma, you'll see that the central area, or Burma proper, is surrounded by several states, the main ones being Shan, Kachin, Karen, and Chin states, collectively known as the hill states. Frontier. The smaller Kaya state, with Moikar as its capital, was formerly part of the Shan state, which also had been ruled by a Sabwa. The differentiation between this direct and indirect rule not only angered the Burmese nationalist, but also damaged their pride. Forever haunted by it, the Burmese politicians harboured an enmity against the British government and on other ethnic states. In 1940, a group of Takins, meaning masters, including Bayok Aung Sung, who was later to become the most prominent political leader in the history of Burma, after clashing with the British government, fled to Japan to ask for assistance. They were jubilant when the Japanese promised them that Burma would be given independence when the war was over. They could also have the Shan state, apart from Kentung and states east of the Salween River, which they had already promised to Thailand. The Japanese army, assisted by some Burmese, advanced into Burma proper soon after the attack at Pearl Harbour and later into the Shan state via Thailand. With the conquest of Burma, all Southeast Asian countries came under the Japanese rule. Once the Japanese had gained control and studied the situation in Burma, they gave Kentung and states east of the Salween River to the Thais but broke their promise to the Burmese. Burma gained independence in name only, and the Shan state remained autonomous, with the Sorbois still in power. The Burmese desire to rule over the Shan state had yet again failed to materialise. The Japanese, we later found, had other plans for the Shan state. They had set up several private firms all over the country with their members engaged most probably as secret agents. 
they had been posted to mix with the locals and inspect the land. They discovered the Shan State had potential, rich in natural resources, and with land, although hilly, was productive around the river valleys. It would serve well for the overspill population of Japan. The climate was pleasant, and, the mo- and most Japanese would not have minded living in such a country. They liked the Shans for their simplicity and honesty. Towards the end of World War II, in 1945, disappointed and disillusioned, the Burmese nationalists abandoned their loyalty to the Japanese. Boyok Aung Sung emerged as the most prominent Burmese political leader. His ambition was to make Burma into an independent, democratic country. Two years later, after the British returned in 1947, Boyok Aung Sung decided that the time was right to demand independence for Burma. But the British government, however, was not in favour. They felt the time was not right. It was too soon after the war and Burma needed more time to rebuild its economy, damaged during the war, and to establish a stable political system. Also, the hill states must be protected and not allowed to make such a crucial decision without understanding what they would be letting themselves into. Being in a strong position, Bayo Gang Sang was in a great hurry. He did not want to give the other political parties the time to gain ground on him. In order to achieve his aim, he needed the support of the hill states, so he immediately made contact with their leaders. For the first time in the history of the Shan state, the Sorbois had come into direct contact with a Burmese politician. They were faced with the most important decision-making period of their lives. The Sorbois were naive or even ignorant where the game of mainstream politics was concerned. During the past 60 years, although they enjoyed the privileges of autonomy, the present generation of Sorbois also received protection and advice from the British government. Even the Japanese, in spite of their peculiar methods, had respected the Sorbois and had refrained from making changes. Nevertheless, the result of this contact was a conference held in 1947 in the Shan State at Panglong, a village near Hopong, about 75 miles away from Tangji. The Sorbois, representing the Shans, hosted the conference. Leaders from the hill states and Bayok Aung Sang and his supporters were invited. Normally, the Sorbois had held their conferences at Tangji, the capital town, always with the British officers present to represent the central government. From this conference, some of them were excluded. Boyok Sang was to be the main speaker. His aim to explain to Assembly members the benefit of unification of states to form the Union of Burma and gain their support. United, they would have greater power to demand independence from the British. Once free from the colonial domination, they would be able to determine their own future. Mining and other industries currently run by and for the benefit of the British companies would be in Burmese hands and the profit used to benefit the country and its people. The conference was part of a larger festival and 
drew many people not directly in the involved in the political process. Extra accommodations for hosts and guests were erected by the licensees who were contracted to hold gambling games. As this was such an important conference, Mother decided to accompany Father, and Audrey and I went along too. Father was allocated a place next to the conference venue from which we discovered we could hear almost everything that went on in the assembly hall. Thus our place became the centre for relatives and friends who were eager to satisfy their curiosity. Among our regular visitors were three of our English friends, Mr Pollard, Mr Davis and Mr Needham, who were superintendents for different Shan states and worked for the central government. As Mother entertained them to afternoon tea, it was possible to hear the raised voices in the conference hall. It was not always clear precisely what was said, but the anger and emotions penetrated the thin walls of our house as Bai Yoke Ung Sung and his delegates sought to impress and influence the assembly members. The tone was so different from other conferences I had experienced, and shouting with violent emotions was rather frightening. At times, the words were as clear as British colonialism was denounced, loud cheers, and as, at the end of the meeting, the hall erupted with cries, Out! Out! British! Out! The presence of British officers in our house put Mother in a somewhat awkward position. It was not in her nature to be hostile to visitors, and, after all, she was well acquainted with them. Her friendship and generosity had resulted in her inviting them to lunch and afternoon tea. Mother had confided afterwards how glad she'd been that her younger brother, Sao, Sai, Mong, and her sister Daphne had been with us throughout the conference. They had helped just being there, while Father attended the conference each day. Each time the slogan came through the thin bamboo walls, Mother was seized by the embarrassment and the vulgarity that was taking place. Our guests, however, did not seem offended or moved in any way with what they were witnessing. In fact, they were bemused. Mr Pollard had smiled and teasingly said that the future of the Shan state would be brighter if it were in the hands of the Mahadevis. Mr Davis clapping had seconded that. Before the war, the Shans had been content to be ruled by Sorba, and the Sorba by the British. After the war, things changed. The Sorba found themselves having to deal with activists in their own states. Some of them were anti-Sorba and others anti-British. Their demonstrations, though not violent, were beginning to put pressure on the Sorba, and most probably this was one, if not the main reason, why the Sorba decided that times were changing and they had to follow the wishes of the people. Perhaps it was really time for the Shan state to be totally independent of the British. The conference lasted for a week, during which Bayo Gangsang achieved what he had wanted. He had managed to persuade the Hill tribe's leaders to accept his proposals. Thus, on the 14th of February 1947, the Sorbois decided theirs and the fate of the Shan people. They had signed the Panglong Agreement with Bayok Ang Sung, who represented the anti-fascist People's Freedom League. The Shan state would become part of the Union of Burma. The Union of Burma 
was to be a country of several states, each state with its system of government, and remain autonomous. All races in the Union would have equal rights and freedom. The present Sorbois would be life members of Parliament, but their descendants would have to undergo election to become members. The Panglong Agreement was binding for a period of 10 years. After 10 years, if the Union should fail, the Shan State would be free to succeed. My father was a man of few words. All he had ever wanted was peace and to serve Lorsak and her people to the best of his ability. He was not interested in politics outside his own state. Although sceptical about the whole agreement, he went along with the majority. Later, he explained to Mother, Audrey and me, what the agreement meant and the reasons why the Sorbois had committed themselves to it. The Sorbois felt that the British, who had ruled over Shan State for more than 60 years, had done very little for the ordinary Shan people. They had not used profit from resources to improve the education and economy of our country. All the mining industries were in the hands of the British firms. What if the Burmese break the agreement and the union does not work out? Mother inquired anxiously. Father tried to reassure her. Bai Yokang Sung seemed quite sincere and genuine. If anything should go wrong, the Shan state had the right to secede after 10 years. But Mother remained unconvinced. Nothing could make Mother believe that the Sorbois had made the right decision. She was convinced that the Sorbois had gambled away their status and states. She reminded Father of the country's history, particularly Burma proper. There had always been political turmoil, with one party at war with another. That's the end of the chapter. And I think many of you, having listened to this, would agree that Nell's mother's concerns were well-founded. Thank you for listening.